0: Good evening. That is a beautiful song. God is love. We are on our second uh, sermon of this thought of being made in His image. And so if you're taking notes, this is part two to that sermon. Uh, The title is, We Are His Offspring. We will find ourselves in Acts chapter 17, if you would like a heads up, that's where we'll be headed, and that's where the phrase actually occurs, and so we'll talk about that momentarily. People, uh, at least it used to be the case, I don't know if it's still the case as much, but there used to be a great amount of discussion about finding your purpose and what it is you're supposed to be doing here, and people are seeking and searching for meaning, Not unlike Solomon, trying to find out why am I here and what am I supposed to be doing with my life. And when people ask questions, other people try to give answers. And so, people have chimed in and come up with different answers for this. There is an immediate problem, though. The moment you start asking, what does God want from me, then you will need a message from God in order to know that. And 1 Corinthians 2 8 through 13 makes it abundantly clear that in order to know God's mind, you need revelation from God. Here is the problem God's not talking anymore. And so, without revelation from God, how are you going to answer that question? People realize pretty quickly they have a problem now. I want the answer, I'm looking for it, but God's not talking to me. What do I do next? Well, then people get creative and they just say things like, well, What are you good at? What do you enjoy doing? Because whatever you enjoy doing and whatever you're good at, then they say things like God has given you this talent and all you need to do is find out what it is. And so now you actually don't need revelation from God. Now we're down to you figure it out. What are you good at what do you like to do and when you find that well then just do that and that'll be your purpose and your fulfillment in life it's interesting you don't find that kind of language in scripture there's nobody really talking like that i can't cite you a book chapter and verse where somebody wanted to know what god had for them to do and then there is their their conclusion with that was go find out what you like And whatever that is, well, then that's what God wants you to do. That's not really the way it works in Scripture. What we read in Scripture is God does tell us. God does tell us. This is not like we have to go figure it out. He did reveal it. What you find, though, is people, they don't think God is specific enough. And so, they want some level of specificity from God beyond the revelation that He has given. But in truth, in both covenants, God made it abundantly clear, here's what I want from you. Here's why you're here, do this. You might find one in Micah chapter 6 and verse number 8 where God says, He has told thee, O man, He's told you What is good? What doth the Lord require of thee? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with my God. Well there you go. Off you go now, go do those things and you'll be fine. But that doesn't tell me where I need to work, and that doesn't tell me who I need to marry. That doesn't tell me how many children we need to have. No, he's not going to tell you those things, but he will tell you what you're here for and what you need to do with your life. As you're turning or are already there in Acts chapter 17, one of the greatest sermons in Scripture, the Apostle Paul addresses that and other things, and he ties it to our being made in his image. It is clear that at least in the city he's in, people have tried to figure it out. In fact, they have— Well, among the things that they do is they love to sit around and hear some new thing because new things, well, that must be it. Have you heard what they're saying, Ian? He heard what they brought to us from. Here is a new thing, and they love to sit around and share and be told new things. The Apostle Paul arrived there. He was stirred in his spirit by the number of gods that they had created, the way that they worshiped those gods that they had made, And he stood there in their midst, and he, among other things, talked about Jesus and the resurrection, which they thought was strange. That's Acts 17, 18, 19, 20. And then he began to preach this sermon. They brought him up to the Areopagus. They allowed him to speak, and the people were around and sitting. And Paul turned their attention to God and his reason for making us, tied it to him sharing his image with us. He began to talk to them about God. First of all, this is verse 22 to 23. By way of his introduction, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. King James, I think, says very superstitious or really, or too superstitious. They're very religious people. They have a lot of gods that they worship. Paul says, I was examining them. I have to try to imagine that's Paul having the truth of man's existence and purpose and the truth of the God of heaven, walking and being ultimately stirred by the amount of ignorance that's there relative to God and to mankind. Paul says, as I was passing through and examining the objects of worship, I found in Scripture an inscription with this, the unknown God. Paul says, that's the one I want to talk to you about, the one you don't know. And he begins making these wonderful statements about God. And you'll notice that he begins very broadly. He narrows a little, but not down to the level that people want God to tell them. And so that's not forthcoming. But he begins by saying, let me tell you about the God of heaven. He is, first of all, singular, verse number 24, God who made the world. He goes on to say he didn't just make the world, he made all things that are in it. And he is Lord. Here is the one you should be worshiping and serving, the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth, the self-existing one. He'll later say the one that doesn't need anything. This is the God I want to tell you about. He goes on to say he is not, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Verse number 25, he says he is worshiped, but not the way you're doing it. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. We could spend the rest of our time, we won't, on this sermon and dissect it and go piece by piece. I suppose at some point we'll circle back and we will do that. It's noteworthy, though, if you just read this sermon and listen to the details that the Apostle Paul sets forth about the God of heaven. It will be, and it is, an amazing sermon and it does move some people to believe. But it begins with God, His nature, His graciousness. He gives, that's what He says here in verse 24. He will go on to say that He limits, He made all men, verse 26, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. Maybe in an evidence class, we would point out the fact that the earth is apparently, you should hear that in quotes, actually very much appropriate for human life. That's not accidental. Of all of the galaxies, and all of the stars, and all of the solar systems, and all of the events—no, just one is conducive to human life. How did that happen? Verse 26, Paul says, he made, he made for one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. That's what he did. And he having set then the appointed times and the boundaries of our habitation, God did that, carved out this place for us to live, Isaiah 45, 12, and 18, and a host of other passages. It's not accidental. But as we continue there in verse 27, he gets to the meat of our discussion tonight, and that he says he did all of that with purpose and intent. What does it mean to have his image? He says in verse 27, that they would seek the Lord. He made them, verse 26, who did he make? All of them. In another sermon, we'll come back and we'll talk about being made in his image and why it demands equality. It demands equality because of verse 26 he made from one man every nation every human being shares the image of God when you and I start talking about people it's important to appreciate that the God of heaven shared his image with every single human being that's ever lived and he did that with purpose that They, the all men of verse 26, should seek the Lord. Now, he wouldn't wouldn't leave us to figure it out. The way we seek the Lord is that he revealed himself. You don't have to guess about him. You don't have to wonder. You aren't left to go home and say, hmm, I wonder what I'm good at. Hmm, I wonder what God wants from me. He didn't leave you to yourself. He didn't just make man. He made man to seek him, and then he gave him the revelation to do that. Beyond that, he came himself in the person of Jesus and walked on the earth, tabernacling among men, and saying, follow me, I'm the way. The purpose is here in verse 27. But it's not simply to seek the Lord, it's that they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us." What does God want from mankind? To be found by mankind. But he doesn't want you to, again, just go figure it out. He's not very far away. In fact, his word is near. It's in our mouth. It's right here available to us. God has done that. How is all of this possible and why does it work? Verse 28 and verse 29, "'For in him we live and move and have our being.'" We exist by him, even as one of your own poets have said, here's our phrase, for we are his offspring. We're his children. All that it is and all that he's done is to this end because we share his image. Ultimately, he is our father. That's what verse 29 says, being then the children of God. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and thought of man. It's not. We're his children. We're his offspring. That's what makes us who we are and makes us so valuable to him. He goes on by way of finishing this chapter. He talks about God's plan ultimately to bring us redemption. Verse 30, verse 30 explains how he carried out that plan. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. He overlooked the time of repentance or or sin or ignorance. He, He did not overlook sin. That would be a mistake to think that God turned a blind eye to sin I believe what the Apostle Paul is saying is God worked with man in his long-suffering to bring the Messiah. If God ended the world every time man sinned, we'd never get to Calvary. And so, his long-suffering while bringing the Christ, he overlooked the times of this ignorance, but no more what Paul says, but now he is commanding who— All men everywhere. Sometimes you sit and have Bible studies with people and they say, but what about those people? Yeah, they need to repent. Well, what about those people that's over there? They need to repent. Well, what about the person that doesn't have and they don't have and they can't get to? They need to repent. Please, when you read the Bible and the Bible says all men everywhere, Would you please not go look somewhere on this planet for people who are exempt? There aren't people exempt from all men everywhere to repent. There is nobody exempt from that. God wants people in heaven. How do they get there? They have to get out of sin. There aren't any exceptions and there aren't any exemptions. Why does Jesus say go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? This is why. Because all men everywhere have to repent. And any man who doesn't, you cannot go to heaven with sin. You simply cannot do that. What should motivate them and us, verse 31, because he has fixed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There is a great day coming. We sing that song sometimes. There's a great day coming, there's a great day coming, there's a great day coming by and by. One of the lyrics of that song says, There's a sad day coming. There's a sad day coming if the Lord should return and people aren't ready to meet him. It is a sad day, but do know this: the day has already been appointed. The day has already been fixed. Nobody knows when the day is, but it's already determined by God. He knows. And at some point, that day will come, and people will be judged by the very person that God sent on behalf of humanity to get them out of sin in the first place. Well, what is my purpose. Well, you have a purpose because you've been made in the image of God, and that purpose is revealed here, is to seek Him and to find Him. When you find Him, submit to Him walk with him, and live faithfully for him. If you don't do this, and friends, it really won't matter what else you do. Not a whole lot else would matter. Now, I don't mean to suggest that you can't be successful as we count success. I'm not saying you can't attain wealth as, as we uh, picture that and, and you can't make accomplishments, but at the end of your life, if all you have are your accomplishments and you lack the blood of Jesus, you lack the forgiveness of sins, then friends, you will be the first one to say nothing else really matters. There's a rich man in Luke 16. You should go visit him. He's still there. He's still there. He opened his eyes in torments, and he's still there. And one of his pleas was, send Lazarus back to my brothers. Why? There is no party here. It's not like what they said. It's not okay here. Do everything you can to help them avoid getting here. If you don't fulfill your purpose in finding God, then friends, nothing else will matter. God expects us then to behave like him spiritually. We talked about this last week. I said we'll mention it briefly. We'll come back to it. This is the comeback to it. Christ's coming to earth is to redeem us and to deliver us and to rescue us from sin. That redemption is for our souls spiritually to get closer and back to its true itself, and that is spiritual. We aren't carnal people sold under sin. That's what we were in sin. But the goal is to be, again, renewed, transformed, redeemed back to the place that God would have us to be. Jesus saw a group of children on one occasion, and he said these words, Suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? So, the kingdom of heaven is like children, yes, in their innocence, in their purity, in their humility, in their trust, in their spirit. What does God want for his people to be like that? Let me ask you a question. Have you found it difficult to be like that? Have you found it hard to get back to that level of innocence and trust? What happens in the world when you and I get headed into sin? It changes us. It begins to harm our image. It hurts. It darkens. It distorts. It weakens. It alters. It damns. It dooms our spirit. Like Adam and Eve, when they first sinned, our eyes are open. That's what happens in sin. You're open to new experience, things you shouldn't have seen, thoughts you shouldn't have had, and actions you were not intended to partake in. And as we start out as little children, that's not how we start. We don't come here as sinners. No, we grow from that innocence, and we grow, and we learn, and we process, and eventually at some point, we sin. And we began our trouble and our journey with sin. It causes us to see ourselves differently. How often have people talked about struggling with image, self-image? I don't think this about myself. I don't feel this way about myself. Why don't you? Sin will harm your mind. It will harm your thoughts about you. You'll begin to wonder, am I good enough? Am I worthwhile enough? Am I this enough? Who's doing that to you? Nobody else is doing that to you. That's coming from in here. How did that happen? I haven't seen any two- or three-year-olds with image problems. I just haven't. They are just as free and as fun and just free as anybody can be. But sin does this. It doesn't just harm your own mind to make you look at yourself differently. You start looking at other humans differently. Next thing you know, we start speaking in some broad terms. You know those people? I don't know who those people are. They're just different than you. Those people? You know they? You know them? You know you can't trust. Who can you trust? Nobody. You mean to tell me there's nobody? You can—no, you got to watch out for—how do you get like this? Well, man, they'll hurt you, they'll get you, they'll just—you better get them before they get—how does this—it begins to distort, but it also distorts your beliefs about God. That's really what happened to Adam and Eve. They began to think of God differently, and so too we. The world's problem is a sin problem, and it's trauma to the soul is what sin is. It's confusing and conflicting. And quite literally, it harms the mind. Look at Luke chapter 15 with me very briefly. This is what happens in sin. In Luke chapter 15, for whatever reason, and I don't know the reason because the reason is not given. But for whatever reason, a younger son in verse number 12 said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. That's what the younger son said. The younger son must know that this is not normal, that inheritances are given after parents die, not while they're living, but I want mine now. I don't know what started him down this path of thinking it, but that's where he is. As a result of that, verse number 13, the Bible says, not many days later. You know when you read this parable and you read this context enough, you read it enough and it begins to sound like, well, he got his stuff and he left. It's not at all what happened. No, he asked on one day, verse number 12, Father, give me my inheritance. And in verse number 13, the Bible says, and not many days later. So, he spent time in the house? Yes. With the money? Yes. Thinking? Yes. And at some point, this was the plan. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had been there, everything, a severe famine, occurred in that country. He began to be impoverished, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens in the country, sent him in his field to feed swine. He would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating no one was giving anything somebody said well eric that's just normal there's nothing here wrong with this boy's mind well it doesn't it may seem that way until you get to verse 17 i don't know how yours reads i think the king james might say when he came to himself the implication being he wasn't at himself when wasn't he at himself When he asked for his father's inheritance, when he waited a few days and gathered his things, when he walked out of his father's house to the far country, when he spent everything he had with riotous or wasteful living, when he was in a pig's pen contemplating eating with the pigs. Surely you would say, that's not right thinking. You're not at yourself when you're doing that. What would make a person sin? would take a person out of the father's house and lead them to a pig's pen. Sin would do that. How do you get out of that? He came to himself. The NSAV actually says when he came to his senses, when he came to himself, now in his right mind, now thinking correctly, he says, I'll go home to my father. This is what sin does to the spirit. It harms the spirit. It affects the mind. It affects the actions and the things that we do. Our walk, our thoughts determine our actions. Still in your Bible, look there in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, Jesus has a conversation with some individuals who, at least for themselves, they have decided that cleanliness is next to godliness. That's what they believe on some level because they don't eat unless they wash their hands and they have given great attention to the cleanliness of the body, to which Jesus says, no, that's not it at all. Verse number 14, after he called them to again, he began to say to them, listen to me, all of you, and and understand. Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of the body which can defile a man. It goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are they what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the crowd disperses. The disciples come back and they ask him, would you explain that in more detail? To which Jesus says in verse 18, are you also without understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him? Why not, verse 19, because it does not go into his heart. It goes into his stomach. Physically, that's what happens. We eat things, consume things. It goes into the body. The body does its processes that God has designed it to do, and then it's expelled, and there you go. There's no defilement there. That's the Lord's point. But a man can be defiled. How? Well, let's just keep reading. Verse number 20, he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles him, for from within— Out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, the fornications, thefts, murders, adultery, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things proceed from within, and they defile the man. God's image is the inner man. And that inner man is defiled by the things that are in the heart of man, the mind of man, and eventually what's in will come out. It's why there is so much emphasis in Scripture on the protecting and the guarding of the heart, because out of it flows the issues of life, Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart with all diligence. For out of it flows the issues, the very essence of life comes from within. Question, how do things get in? If taking something from outside of my body and eating it is not going to defile me, if what is inside comes out, that defiles me, how to get in there? It's the spirit of man that you and I share with God. And that spirit needs to be protected by what it eats and what it consumes. Because what it ingests, what that spirit imbibes, will affect that spirit, will affect the mind, will affect the actions, will affect the words. Why do I say the things that I say? Something is in there that I use to say that. Why do I do the things I do? Some people, again, trying to figure out, always, dealing with the symptoms. Here's what I'm doing. I'd like to stop it. No. While that might, might manifest some immediate results temporarily, it won't fix the problem because the problem is not the action, the problem is the thought behind the action. And if that is not corrected, if that's not fixed, then the actions are going to inevitably continue as long as those thoughts are present, moving you to do those. What sin does is it distorts our ability to see spiritually. And what should be repulsive and evil, ultimately, if we're not careful, will be seen as good and okay. What should be avoided actually can become desired. And, And what should be seen as harmful can be seen as beneficial. In fact, that's exactly Satan's presentation to Eve. You will not die, so there's no danger here. But you will be like God. Actually, there's going to be great benefit to you. What should be avoided, actually, when she saw it, she desired it, she took it. It actually became desirable to her. Same thing with us. Why does this happen? Because we're made in his image, and it's our spirit that we must protect and shape and mold to be like him. That's what God is after, and that's what Jesus came to do. What's the solution? Get out of sin. This is why God sent Jesus. You and I couldn't do this on our own, and so God sent Jesus. He came to redeem us, to justify us, to save us, to deliver us. And what the Bible describes it is in in many passages, one way or another, is newness. A new man, a new creature, a new babe, it describes it as new. What's being made new? The Spirit. When is that happening? In baptism. What are we doing? Converting. We're changing the mind. We're transforming the spirit, getting it back to what God intended. Who's going to help us do that? Jesus. How is he going to do it? Have your Bibles. Look at Ephesians 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, we've talked about this book before. Some some point we'll study it, preach through it at some point. I hope you know that by now I've said we'll study it, we'll preach through it enough for me to be here about 35 years. I hope you, you understand that. <laughs> so, that's, that's how long it's going to take. But we're going to circle back. Did I say that? We're going to circle back. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 and parts of 4 is about what God did in Christ to bring the church. and Ephesians 4, halfway through the, and then on through the end of the book, it's how we're to live. And right kind of sandwich in the middle is this process of transition and transformation and change of the spirit the mind here in chapter 4 and verse 17 I know we're jumping all over the place tonight apologies of course if we were in a class or some other form I would say we need to start at chapter 1 and verse 1 and then we need to read all the you know that though right sorry we can't do it tonight verse 17 chapter 4 Paul says to the brethren there who have come Out of idolatry and sin as Ephesians, Acts 19. He says in verse 17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk. You remember we talked about walking this morning. He says you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. So, they were once Gentiles themselves, Acts chapter 19. They were that way, and Paul says you know people who are still that way. But now you have become a Christian, and so you can't walk like that anymore. How do they walk? Listen to the description there in verse number 17, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. What has happened to them in this state? You hear all of the words that has to do with the mind. He says in verse 17, they walk in the futility of their mind. They're darkened in their understanding, their ignorance of God. As a result of that, their walk is going to be out of harmony with God. And so what happens in verse 19, he describes that he says, they have become callous, hard-hearted and have given themselves over. They've given in and given up to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That has to happen to one without Christ living in sin. That's the result. How does that affect you? In every way. In every way. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, it affects you in every way. Now, here's what the world does. The world is not without knowledge about their issues to this end. But what they always try to do is fix the spiritual by addressing the physical. And so, with this kind of walk, how do we make it better? We buy makeup and hair and cover up concealers. We lose weight. We put on men girdles and spray on hair. And why would we do that? because of those internal issues. And to fix it, I want to fix my outside to make sure you know. When it doesn't work, and it doesn't, emotionally, we take meds and drugs, and we drink and we smoke, we give ourselves to sex, we diet, food, we buy things. We do something to try to feel better. That doesn't work. And so then we invent our own religions, Or we, as some people say, I'm spiritual, not religious. As other people say, I have a higher power. I have a lot of self-help gurus who tell me what to do. What are we trying to do? We're trying to fix it, but we have no way to fix it. We're trying to improve our image, but we're working on the physical and not the spiritual because we don't have the capacity or the ability to address the spiritual. We need Jesus for that. In fact, that's who Paul turns to in verse number 20. But you did not learn Christ this way. You were that way, and then you came to Jesus. And what did you do? You learned. It is the beginnings of a changed mind. It's why the Bible talks about being born again, 1 Peter 1, 18 to 25. Being reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5, 15 to 21. What happens then when I change, when I'm transformed, when I'm renewed. Notice the progress there in verse 21 down to verse 24. Paul says, if indeed you have heard of him, have been taught by him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed. Where? In the spirit of your mind, your mind is being renewed, renovated, made over. And then you put on the new self. But this one is like God, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Again, we don't have time to proceed through Ephesians chapter 4 and into chapter 5. But that's what Paul says, and then it immediately gets into a changed life. Now, I'm trying to hasten toward the end here to get you out uh, before 8 o'clock look at Galatians 5. We're we're taking the flyover approach. You do appreciate. I know you do. We didn't land in any one of these places tonight and drill down deeply. You do appreciate that, yes? No? Maybe so? So, with this flyover approach, we're trying to say in a number of ways that it's the Spirit that God has made and shared with us. Now we turn to Galatians chapter 5, so we go through the process of being born again, transformed, renewed, and now we walk in newness of life. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about then the fruit of the Spirit. This is certainly not the time or night to get into a lengthy discussion about the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, but we'll circle back, probably year 36, we'll circle back. It is the case, though, that I'm going to urge you tonight that the fruit of the Spirit is what God Spirit produces. That's what God is, the fruit of the Spirit. Well, where did you get the fruit? You get that from the seed. Luke 8, 11. now the parable is this. The seed is the Word of God. The seed produces the fruit. Well, whose fruit it? It would be the Spirit's fruit, God's Spirit. That's the fruit produced by the seed. What Paul is saying I'm going to urge is that that's not beyond our Spirit. That our Spirit is intended to produce said fruit by being in harmony with the Spirit. That the Spirit's production of what He produces is that your Spirit is intended to produce that that the human spirit can produce that fruit. In fact, that's the expectation. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, after you learn Christ and after you're redeemed and after you're renovated, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, again, there are plenty of people who do some fanciful stuff with the Spirit. I'm not—it's not the case that your spirit presently is incapable of producing those fruit. It's not the case that in Christ, your spirit needs the Holy Spirit to do something to you to produce those fruit. That's not the case at all. It's the expectation of you having God's Spirit. It's the expectation of you being spiritual. The human spirit transformed by Christ, taught by God, is intended to produce love, joy, peace, Long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faith, self-control. That's your spirit to produce that. It is his fruit, absolutely, but the expectation is your spirit will produce. How do you know that? Because you produce the other. Just keep reading. Go back, if you will, just a few passages. And notice what he says. Verse number 19 it's not very different than reading Ephesians 4, 17. How did we formally walk? How did they formally walk? Verse number 18, he's, verse 19, he says, Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I tell you now, and I forewarned you as I have forewarned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the king. How is that different than Ephesians 4? That's the way you walked. How is that different than 1 Corinthians 6, 9? Such were some of you. That's the way you walked in sin. Who produced that? Your spirit did. And now you've been brought out of that by learning Christ. And now your spirit is intended by God to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Your spirit is intended to be loving and patient and kind and goodness. How? Just like your father. So when you hear Christians saying, yeah, that ain't me. Well, friend, why not? And friend, who do you expect it to be? You can't ask me to be like God. That's exactly the expectation. He's not asking you to be like somebody else. He's asking your spirit to be like his spirit, like these. That's exactly what he's asking. In fact, he says it in such simple terms. Matthew 5, 43 and verse 48, the end of that passage says, be like your heavenly father. In Ephesians chapter 4, we didn't read it. Verse 32, that passage says, be like your father. The expectation is his offspring will be like him Luke 6 36 be therefore merciful as your father is merciful John 13 34 a new commandment I give you that you love one another how as I love you Matthew 6 14 and 15 forgive as I have forgiven you it means we can be like God it means we can be like our Heavenly Father in fact it means that's the expectation of God but you can't do that over here without him You can do that, though, when you come to him, you obey, you submit, you transform your mind, change your heart, change your mind, then the expectation is you will bear the fruit of your father. You will be like him. In the end, it also means we can work together with him. Paul describes it in those terms, at least with reference to the apostles. He says we are laborers together, not for God, although that's true, too. He says, we are laborers together with God. The church, that's heaven's plan and heaven's purpose. And the individuals who come out of that world and into that church, image shares of God, transformed into his image, made like unto him, expected then to be like him and work with him in bringing others to the same place. Now, the Christian tonight... We beg, urge, plead you to become one. You need your life transformed. You need your mind renewed. You need your life given to Jesus. You need the newness that he offers. Friends, the other option is simply to keep laboring and toiling under the weight and burden of sin. And in the end, friends, life will be miserable here and eternity will be lost to you. I said this morning that God won't send anybody to hell, and that's true. And I didn't cite you a reference for that, and I felt bad later, but there is a reference. It's Acts chapter 13 and verse 46. The Apostle Paul talking to the Jews, he actually said these words. It was necessary that the word of God should be preached to you first, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Friends, don't judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life. Become a Christian. Submit to Jesus change your heart and your mind, and let him save you. Believe that he's the son of God and repent. Confess his name and allow yourself to be immersed in water, buried with him for the forgiveness of your sins, and then become a new creation in Christ and walk and be transformed more and more like him. Christians, if you're here tonight, brothers and sisters, let me say this. Please do not allow another day, week, month, year to pass believing i can't be like god please don't allow yourself another day week month year not transforming yourself to be more like god the expectation is that his children will bear the family resemblance we can help you in any way tonight we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing